Pro Se, Lafayette's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I am here with my two excellent co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knoth. Hey, Alex. Hey, Amber. Really awesome show this week. We have some very interesting news stories to get to. We're going all hosts again. Uh, so you'll get the three-man weave here. Some quite fascinating stories that I'm really excited to talk about. Before we dive in, though, just minutes before we started recording this session, we learned of a very interesting cert grant from the Supreme Court. I guess this counts as a return of cert grant corner. It does. Which oh, boy. Corner. Haven't done in a long time. Cue the music. I don't think there's music for this, but I think um, the music was usually you just singing, Alex. So either cue yourself. There, yeah. there we go. There we well, anyway, the Supreme Court. This is this is this is a, actually a very important and serious case. The Supreme Court has agreed to review the bankruptcy reorganization plan of the opioid giant Purdue Pharma, which you may remember was notable because when Purdue declared bankruptcy after being hit with judgment after judgment, and I think the big item there was that they had agreed to pay $6 billion for their role in the opioid crisis. Then they declared bankruptcy. And part of the terms of the bankruptcy reorganization is that the Sackler family, which had controlled Purdue Pharma for, for years, the reorganization plan shielded the family from any liability going forward in future opioid cases. And I remember this was quite controversial at the time. I'm almost certain we talked about it on Pro Se. And it was so controversial, in fact, that the Biden administration forcefully opposed this, began litigating over it, and now it's ascended all the way to the Supreme Court, which is going to be looking at this in the coming term. So that's, uh, I found that quite fascinating. This is instantly going to be uh, a one to watch. You know, we're always like, have our eye on a handful of Supreme Court cases that feel like they could be quite impactful. And wow, what, what you can do in one of these bankruptcies to avoid some of the liability of these giant suits and settlements is really interesting. Yeah, and depending on how, I mean, we, we haven't even, there hasn't even been <laughs> a single brief filed, but depending on how, you know, narrow or broad they, they could rule on a question like this, is fa- it has fascinating implications for any kind of corporate restructuring, which is, you know, people are often keen to put in some kind of legal liability shield, um, but the limits of that are very much under debate as they are here. So definitely we'll keep our eyes peeled on that one. Okay, so let's turn to news now. And I know you just said it, Alex, something that we're going to keep our eyes on. We say that kind of phrase all the time on Pro Se, and I want to make good today. I have an update on a contentious issue that's clouding the federal circuit that we've talked about before in the show. It's the battle over whether a 96-year-old longtime judge is mentally fit to remain on the bench. Our own IP guru, Ryan Davis, reported on the latest here. A federal circuit panel has issued a recommendation that Judge Pauline Newman be suspended from hearing all cases for one year for not cooperating with the probe into her competency. Oh boy, this one is, I, I remember when we talked about it before, it's a very delicate, very sensitive issue. It, you know, it's kind of, it's both questioning the integrity of judges on the bench and also age-based discrimination. But let's, if people aren't remembering the underlying facts here, let's get some background. Yeah, I'm glad that we've sort of set up the parameters here because it can just sound like a salacious story about one particular judge, but it does have sort of broader implications potentially about how do we safeguard and make sure the the, the bench has competent judges on it? And then on the flip side, how do we not discriminate as judges creep up in age? So those are some two really conflicting ideas. I'd refer first 
our listeners back to episode 298. That was back in May. We broke down the whole issue as it stood at that point. It's a really great background if people get fascinated with this and want a fuller discussion. According to this panel report, the whole fight started after court staff reported, and I'm quoting here, deeply troubling interactions with Judge Newman. And the report went on to say that they, quote, sadly suggest significant mental deterioration. The report also said statistics show that Judge Newman is unable to complete her work in a timely way. And a lot of these complaints were judges and staff saying that Newman routinely made statements in open court that demonstrated a lack of awareness over the issues in her cases that were before her. So pretty serious allegations there. And it was implied that she was aging and having uh, mental health deterioration, and that's what was going on. It was because of these complaints that the court initiated an investigation. The court ordered Newman to submit to medical examinations, turn over medical records, and agree to an interview with the federal circuit panel that was doing the investigating. Newman did not like this, steadfastly refused to comply. Newman argued that the investigation violates her due process and shows bias against her. She's gone so far as to file a lawsuit against her colleagues that is seeking to halt this investigation altogether. When I read about what the panel had had recommended here, it was interesting to me because it was, they sort of didn't tackle head on this question of her cognitive fitness or whatever, or however we want to delicately describe it, because they, they kind of honed in on the fact that she didn't cooperate with them at all. And that kind of formed the basis for their recommendations. I suppose that the propriety of the investigation is still to be, to be litigated. You said she's suing, but let's focus for now on exactly what the panel recommended. Yeah, definitely. This is a little dissatisfying in some ways because you want them to get to the core factual issue. Is this judge that's currently on the bench fit to be there? But because of the lack of participation, they essentially said, we can't properly assess this. And that's actually a huge problem. So the special committee, it consisted of three federal circuit judges, including Chief Judge Kimberly Moore, The report they released is quite lengthy. It's 111 pages. It came out late last week. It also includes more than 200 pages of exhibits. So this is exhaustive for what they had available. The committee focused a lot on how Newman has fought the investigation itself, concluding that her actions were basically thwarting the investigation and that they, quote, constitute a serious form of misconduct. So they basically said because she won't participate, that in itself is misconduct. For that reason, the committee recommended that Newman be barred from sitting on any new cases for a year or until she complies with the special committee's orders. And again, that's to submit to a medical examination and turn over medical records. The committee specifically rejected Newman's claims that the investigation violates due process or shows bias against her. Here's another quote from the committee. Thwarting the process Congress created for determining whether a life-tenured judge suffers from a disability is a serious matter. So they basically said, you can't say no to this. We have to be able to fully assess the capacity of judges because they're on the bench for life and we need to have a safeguard here. The recommendations have now gone to the Federal Circuit's Judicial Council. That includes all of the court's active judges, apart from Newman herself in this instance, for obvious reasons. And they will now consider whether or not they should adopt this measure to keep her from hearing new cases. Yeah, I mean, this obviously is is very sensitive. It seems perhaps, though, that her attempts to fight this have backfired a bit um, with the results of, of this report. How has she reacted? 
Well, it won't surprise anybody that's been following this even a little bit to hear that she's not happy about this either. So her attorney said the judge vigorously disputes not only the legal conclusions in this report, but also the factual ones, and that they'll be responding to the report by the end of the month. So more will come from her side of the story. And so look out for that by the end of August. One of our senior IP reporters, Danny Cass, has also been reporting on this in addition to Ryan Davis. Danny had a chance to sit down with Judge Newman back in July. So it was before the report came out, but after sort of investigation was initiated and this all became public. Danny landed a 90-minute interview with Judge Newman, had an extensive conversation, and at that time, Newman was very angry and frustrated about the investigation and everything that's happened and said something that I think sort of encapsulates her stance on this. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the objective truth is completely on my side. So Newman is sticking to that hard stance. No one seems to be backing down here. We will continue to monitor this one, but I think it does have potential ripple effect and implications for other long-tenured judges, you know, across the nation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that update, Amber. Um, We're going to turn now to a story far less sensitive, far less, uh, (laughs) one could say, important. Uh, Oh, come on. Bring us some joy, Haley. (laughs) Look, it's just, it's a, as a spectator, it's a fun little dispute for us. I'll say that. So YouTube star Mr. Beast has found himself beefing with, pun intended, a virtual restaurant company that he was working with on his own personal burger called the Mr. Beast Burger. Very creative name, first of all. Very (laughs) creative name. He's Mr. Beast. Indeed. He's starting a burger. It's the Mr. Beast Burger. I also just want to really compliment the beefing pun. I made a terrible similar one in our production meeting and Feel like I've infected your brain. Thank you. So I much. was, yeah, I was trying to remember your pun as well. Uh, it also morning. included beef. Oh yeah, <laughs> one cannot avoid that low-hanging fruit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the listeners. <laughs> she said it was a meaty dispute. That's what she said. Oh, that's oh that right. is what I said. That's right. And I was silent, and I can't really be silent I, anymore. But it was. That's fair. It's <laughs> anyway. completely fair. Okay, beefy, Continue. meaty. Keep, keep on with the burger puns. What else? We yes. Have? So. I I can't promise more puns, but if you come up with more, Amber, throw them out there. Mr. Beast recently sued this company, and he claimed that it ruined his reputation because these Mr. Beast burgers have turned out to be, quote, inedible and revolting. And that's not where this this beef stops. This company and another company has now countersued accusing Mr. Beast of breaching their contract by making these disparaging comments about <laughs> the quality of the food. This is this is like an Ouroboros of like web marketing or something. The it's idea great. that like it's a literal food fight. I love it. I say oh, God bless. Yeah. I like, you know, this is like I say that I've signed up to be a spokesperson for your product and I think this product sucks and that reflects poorly <laughs> on me. And of course the company is saying, well, you can't just go around telling your Millions and millions of YouTube <laughs> listeners that our product sucks. And uh, and that, that brings us up to speed. Now, one of my crankiest old man opinions is that, like, I really hate the collective prominence of YouTubers and influencers in our culture. But it's undeniable. Uh, they're very powerful figures, especially when it comes to marketing and things like that. So please catch me up. Who is Beast? Is his dad Mr. Beast? He's Mr. Beast. <laughs> this, is, this reminds me so much of talking about the musician Meatloaf, Mr. Loaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the same vibe. Mr. Beast is my father. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. No. Uh, and what, so who is this guy? And what was the on paper 
plan for doing this burger uh, promotion? I, too, had to catch myself up on who he truly is. I'd heard the name, but as chronically online as I am, I have never actually found myself watching a Mr. Beast video. So, of course, I watched a few to prepare for this segment. I can only describe these videos as uh, ridiculous self-imposed challenges. I saw one where he survived on a raft for a few days in the ocean. There was one where he was buried alive for 50 hours. There's a rather dark one where he was uh, recreating squid games, like in a gymnasium full of people. Anyway, no one died, but <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks, good note. Good thankfully, note. I feel like we'd be talking about a different kind of lawsuit. When I, happened, yeah, but. when I clicked the link, I didn't know what I was about to watch. Okay. Uh, but so Mr. Beast's real name is Jimmy Donaldson. Uh, he has 172 million YouTube subscribers. Wow. So the people, the people really do love this content. And Mr. Beast contracted with a company called Virtual Dining Concepts. It's a delivery-only burger restaurant. And the plan was that they virtual dining contracts with brick-and-mortar restaurants to prepare this burger and fries under the Mr. Beast name, and then it's delivered to customers' homes. Yeah, I get that concept. I've seen a ton of like other famous people have like these ghost kitchen arrangements where there's something that's just prepared and you can order it on, you know, pick your delivery app. I'm really interested in how we got to Mr. B suing, though, because that seems like a pretty straightforward transaction. And, you know, I understand where the company wants him. 172 million people view his stuff. How did it go wrong? He says the burger has just not turned out well. Customers are criticizing it in thousands of online reviews. They say it's been delivered late. In some instances, he says it was just like straight up inedible. I saw one Reddit post that he included a screenshot of in his complaint where someone shared a photo of their burger and the caption was, realized after the first bite that it was mostly just raw meat. And indeed, the photo was disturbing. It's almost like a meta thing where now all of the people ordering them are doing a Mr. Beast challenge. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is true. That was not the intention, though. So No, no, it was. Well, who can say? Who can say what what goes on (laughs) behind the scenes here? Getting food poisoning for clout. Exactly. Don't put it past people, Alex. Don't put it past people. No, no, I I certainly would not. (laughs) Okay, so back to the lawsuit, though, Haley. Set us straight. I keep distracting because I'm very interested in how weird I think this whole thing is. But back to the lawsuit. Understandably, yes. So he says <laughs> his claims are that virtual dining concepts has done irreparable damage to his brand and his reputation. According to him, the company was more interested in the profits it could make by rushing to launch food delivery ventures with influencers than it was interested in the actual quality of the food. Mr. B said that as soon as he heard about the criticisms and the bad reviews, He reached out to the company and was like, yo, what's up? Let's take care of this. But the company has not done so. And it also hasn't paid him the royalties and distributions that he's owed under the contract. Allegedly, of course. Uh, Here's a quote from the complaint. Because the entire business is based on the tremendous global value of the Mr. Beast brand, it is Mr. Beast himself and not virtual dining concepts who has borne the brunt of the justified attacks and criticisms. Mr. Beast has made every effort 
to cause virtual dining concepts to fix these significant quality control problems as soon as he learned of them, but they refused and or were incapable. And so as far as his demands here, he wants the court to rule that he has a right to shut down the Mr. Beast (laughs) burger business under their contract. And plus, of course, he wants the company to pay up. I'm honestly a little bit surprised that stuff like this doesn't happen more often. And I guess it might. It's a relatively new business model. But the idea that when you consider the popularity of people who enter into marketing arrangements like this, and also the idea that, you know, you kind of farm out the actual preparation of the food to whatever brick and mortar restaurants are in a given area, it doesn't account for quality control. So um, I could see something like this happening Somewhat regularly, though maybe not to this scale, which is why it led to litigation. I mean, honestly, to me, this is uh, yet another proof point of like, beware famous and semi-famous people about what you sign up for. Because, you know, you can get sued over your involvement in Bitcoin uh, shilling. Sure, yeah. You can get in trouble for something like this, where your fans turn on you because it Mm -hmm. didn't turn out the way you thought. So lots of pitfalls out there for the influencers. Yeah, exactly. It reminds Won't me a lot of think of the influencers. Um, <laughs> no, the um, so that's what that's what Mr. Beast is saying. I get it from his perspective, but the company very quickly countersued. Um, and what what are they alleging? I imagine it has something to do with his own very you know forceful ad uh, you know advocacy for himself and his brand. Yep, that's exactly it. Virtual dining concepts, and then another company that's involved called Celebrity Virtual Dining LLC. Uh, They both (laughs) countersued. They painted a very different picture. They said, Mr. Beast is the one who violated their agreement by publicly stating that he wanted the burger business shut down. They pointed to a June tweet um, in which he responded to someone asking if he would retire the burger. And according to their suit, he said in that tweet, I would if I could, but the company I partnered with won't let me stop, even though it's terrible for my brand. (laughs) Young Beast signed a bad deal. (laughs) <laughs> you you got to appreciate the candor. Uh, this is like, I know, I, I love it. I don't want to be doing business with these people, but I have to. Uh, that's how <laughs> yep. it goes. Yep. Those comments, uh, the company says they were baseless and unlawful, and they tarnished the brand and caused nine-figure losses, according to the suit. They also said Mr. Beast is the one who pushed for the rapid expansion of the product. And as for its quality, they said the burger is actually, quote, undeniably satisfying. And they said (laughs) there are more customers that like the burger than there are customers who've complained. I love the description as undeniably satisfying. Great. The company said what's really going on here is Mr. Beast schemed to exploit his leverage and back out of his agreement so that he could seek better, more lucrative deals. He did this by latching on to these few complaints that he found on the internet so that he could try and claim a breach of contract on the part of the companies and then back out. Here's a quote from from their countersuit. This case is about a social media celebrity who believes his fame means that his word does not matter, that the facts do not matter, and that he can renege and breach his contractual obligations without consequence. He is mistaken. So this is obviously just the beginning of this beef, this food fight, which I will add is playing out in both federal and state courts in New York. Uh, Mr. Beast's suit is in federal and the company's suit is in state court. So uh, a lot to look forward to here, I will say.
If you've been listening to Pro Se for a while, you get a sense of how it goes when we talk about corporate litigations, specifically when it goes to trial. When a company loses a trial, we're often talking to you about damages, we're talking about injunctions, something that the, that the company isn't allowed to do anymore, policy changes they have to make. But we don't usually talk about court-ordered statements that essentially require the company to just say, hey, we screwed up. Because that's frankly not that interesting. That's usually pretty cut and paste, and there's not a lot of intrigue in that. That is not the case in the story we are talking about this week, and that is because this past week, a Texas judge ordered attorneys for Southwest Airlines to undergo sensitivity training to increase their awareness about what he called religious liberty for defying his order that was issued after the company lost a religious bias suit. Now, another layer of intrigue with this is that the sensitivity training ordered by the court is to be conducted by a Christian legal organization that has been deemed an extremist hate group by its opponents. So the layers are multitude. Clearly nothing of any significance to unpack here. I don't know no. why we're even talking about this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a grab bag of every issue we've had on Per Se ever. I think maybe I just need to go with a general like, Alex, what is going on here? Yeah, so the context is surrounds this lawsuit that Southwest was involved in. They, they were sued by a flight attendant, a former flight attendant named Charlene Carter. And she sued them after she was fired from the company for what she said was voicing disapproval for the flight attendant union's support of the Planned Parenthood-sponsored Women's March in early 2017. So that's a pretty cut-and-dried bias case. The company lost uh, at trial last year, and they were ordered to pay $5 million in damages, though that was eventually narrowed, uh, winnowed down on appeal to 800000 And, you know, as I said, normally that's probably where we would leave it. I, I, that's pr pretty open and shut. But a small wrinkle in the outcome of this case is that the company was required to issue a statement informing workers that under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the company was not allowed to discriminate over their religious practices and beliefs. Now, again, that seems like a pretty boilerplate statement of fact about what Title VII is supposed to do and, and what the law actually says. But that's exactly where this story goes a little bit sideways. Because instead of just citing to the law and saying that it's not allowed to discriminate under that law, Southwest uh, instead issued a notice to the company saying, quote, the court ordered us to inform you that Southwest does not discriminate against our employees for their religious practices and beliefs. And it went on to say that employees need to abide by its policies and that it believed that its firing of Carter was justified under those policies. So you can see what they're doing here. They're basically saying, first of all, they're saying we're only issuing this statement because the court said we had to, which is one thing. But then it also frames their obligation in a in like an active and almost a positive way where it says the court ordered us to inform you that Southwest does not discriminate against our employees. Um, so a couple of fairly significant changes there from what the judge asked. You made it sound like the judge was not pleased with this approach, perhaps. No. <laughs> what, how did he react? Not in the slightest. The judge here is, this is in Texas federal court, U.S. District Judge Brantley Starr 
really was not happy with Southwest and the alterations that it made to the statement that he ordered them to give. He basically said that when you read that, it sounds like the court gave the company what he called a badge of honor, certifying that it does not discriminate against its employees, which he said basically turns the entire outcome of the case on its head. If you read it a certain way, it almost seems like they won the case. We don't discriminate, and the court said so. And here's where it gets really wild, because there we're just kind of bickering over the way you frame a statement and all stuff like that. Now, to make up for their alterations, the judge ordered three in-house attorneys at Southwest to attend, quote, training on religious freedom conducted by the Alliance Defending Freedom. And if the ADF, if that group sounds familiar to you, it's because they are one of the most prominent Christian legal advocacy groups in the country. Most recently, they represented the Colorado web designer who won at the Supreme Court um, saying that they, they wish to refuse services for same-sex weddings. And that was one of the highest profile decisions of the most recent term. Now, to give some further context here, I, we should note the ADF does have, is not you know, some crackpot organization in the sense that it does have special advisory status in forums like the United Nations and the European Union. But the Southern Poverty Law Center um, has labeled it an extremist group uh, that has advocated for the recriminalization of sexual acts between consenting LGBTQ adults and is generally an advocate for very hyper-conservative social causes. Now, along with ordering this training, the judge fashioned a new statement for the company to make that, you know, includes his initial order and then also walks back their more defiant, more, you know, what he called proactive amended version. So that brings us up to speed on exactly what was ordered here. I can't believe this all began with just sort of a version of like malicious compliance almost. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, we have to say this? Well, we're going to say it the way we want to say it, but technically we said it. Yeah. So that's, it's got that vibe. There is some debate to be had, I think, about whether or not the ADF is extremist or if they are, you know, a legitimate group for this purpose. But we don't have to get too far into that to realize that this is just unusual to recommend that they get this training from any outside group, I think, would be notable, let alone one that has this contentious stuff swelling around them. I'm very interested in what comes next. I mean, is this as crazy as it seems to me, Alex? I mean, this this is weird, right? Yeah. And, and one other thing I wanted to mention is that the attorneys for Southwest, at some point in the intervening proceedings here, they did apologize for altering the language of the court's order and offer to revise it to his liking, to, to, to the judge's liking. But that did not appease him. And that kind of prompted him to push ahead with this order to undergo this, you know, religious liberty training, sensitivity training, whatever you want to call it. So in order to put it into a little bit of context, I did want to flag... Um, some reporting by our own Sue Reisinger. First of all, she reported that the company is going to appeal both the underlying verdict in the case as well as the judge's training order in the coming weeks. And I'm, I'm sure that will put it in further context, like you're saying, Amber. I'm sure they will draw to case law that says, like, here are the circumstances under which you can order stuff like that and who's allowed to conduct training like that. Right. We'll keep our eyes peeled on that in the coming weeks. Sue, though, also talked to a Virginia law professor for her story named Micah Schwartzman and basically called the judge's order disturbing and was way out of step with what courts traditionally order in instances like this. This was a quote from that professor, which I thought was quite succinct in, in summing up the issue. 
First, ADF is a religious advocacy group with a Christian mission and self-identifies as such. Ordering training from a group whose mission is to promote a certain religious vision is a measure that I don't think I've ever seen from a federal judge in any kind of sanction order. So that, I mean, that's just one law professor's opinion, but it raised some eyebrows and I, for one, am very eager to see, um, I'm, I'm not very familiar with case law on, you know, who gets to conduct training like that and when judges can order it. And uh, I, I will be, be very interested to see the briefs that are filed in this appeal. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about them again uh, if circumstances warrant. So stay tuned. That'll wrap up today's show. So glad we did it host style. We had a lot of stuff to talk about. Thanks for bringing that Southwest one, Alex. Super interesting. Thank you, Amber. Always a pleasure. And Haley, we really needed those burger laughs. I don't have any concluding puns, unfortunately. That is a shame. Please reflect. Report back with some more next week. We also want to thank a lot of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Ryan Davis, Danny Cass, Elliot Weld, and Emily Sawicki. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, and I really hope that you do, leave us a five-star review and a written write-up. That's how other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, that's when you go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.